Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets. What's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbees, Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. Uh, it is my pleasure to be sitting now with Bill Bonner. Bill Bonner is the co-founder and president of Agora Publishing, who, among other titles, published Money Week. He writes a daily financial column called The Daily Reckoning, and his books include Financial Reckoning Day, Surviving the Soft Depression of the 21st Century, and Empire of Debt, which he wrote with Addison Wiggin, and Mobs, Messiahs and Markets, which he wrote with, I hope I pronounce this correctly, Leela Raiva. Is that right? Uh, Rajiva. Rajiva, excuse me. Uh, well, Bill, uh, welcome to the show, and thanks very much for agreeing to this interview, and... and um, Let's start with the words, the soft depression of the 21st century. What what exactly did you mean by that? Well, I just wanted to distinguish it from the hard depression of the 1930s, because when you say the word depression, people immediately uh, get in a combative mood because they don't see any bread lines, and uh, mostly the difference is between black and white and color. You know, they didn't have color back in the 1930s, and so when people see images of the 30s, they... For today, we think that they didn't have color back then. But so when today we look out and see everything in color, we think, well, this is not like the 30s. And in truth, it is not like the 30s in lots of ways. But a depression is a, is a particular uh, phenomenon that's very, very poorly understood because there's so few of them. It only happens every once in a while. And this a depression is a time when an economy doesn't just slow down. It doesn't get a cold and doesn't, doesn't recover from the cold after the Fed gives it a shot of, of lower rates. A depression is when the economy dies. And when it dies, a new economy has to rise up. It's not the same one. It's no, in this, I use the word depression very, very carefully because I want us to, to, to make a distinction between the recessions of the post-war period. This is a, recess, a, a depression, and it comes after a whole period of about 62 years following World War II in which credit increased. And now we're seeing credit decrease for the first time substantially, significantly since the war, and it sends everything in a new direction. I suppose one big uh, difference between the two depressions, and you're right about that, that black and white image, it gives everything a much more depressing, stark quality. But I suppose one big difference is that people were hungry in the 1930s, and, and they're not now, at least they're not in the West. There's, there's no shortage of donuts in yes. the United States. Well, it's too bad, because the Depression did marvels for American life ex- expectancies. We, you know, we, there have been studies now that show that life expectancy between in the in 1930s went up six years in America. This is a remarkable increase. That's amazing. And then the studies showed they looked at depressions and recessions other countries. They find that whenever there's an economic slump, significant economic slump, that the life uh, expectancies rise. 
Do you think that's because people start uh, looking after themselves better? I don't, I don't know why that is, really. <laughs> I, don't, I just take it as part of the natural order of things, you know, that bad events bring good things. Well, I, I know, I know just when bad things have happened to me, I often find myself kind of tightening my belt and, you know, dis- self-discipline improving and all that kind of thing. So maybe that has something to do, it, to do with it. Um, the, and yes, bad events sometimes do bring good things. I suppose it brings families closer together is, is, is one example. And People have more time, you know, because they're not working so hard. One of the things that happens in a uh, boom, and then especially in a bubble, is that people become very, very busy. And we saw that in America, and we saw it in London, too, where people thinking that they were going to earn a lot of money, they, there's sort of a natural instinct. You know, this is the time to earn a lot of money. And so people become very, very busy. And you see the most aggressive people work in the city or on Wall Street. You know, they work around the clock. You know, they're these, you get a young guy in the city starting out, he works 16 hours a day. He's expected to do that because it's presumed that he learns much faster and it's presumed that all that hard work results in a net benefit to somebody. Well, it probably results in a net benefit to him if he likes money. But as we see now, the society in general didn't get any, any, any boost from all that hyperactivity. But there is hyperactivity in a boom year, in a bubble year. People get very, very busy, acting busy, looking busy, you know, getting on the phone, getting on the email and everything. But the result is not necessarily any increase whatsoever in uh, well-being. It's, it's interesting also that you, you've described the expansion of credit over the last 60 or so years. And um, that expansion kind of went, started to go exponential after 1971 when obviously... Uh, Nixon took the Americans off the gold standard and con- currently with that you've seen higher divorce rates, more kind of family dysfunction. It would be, it would be interesting if you could c- plot them all on a graph and you'd see a definite correlation yeah. between the two. Yes, and I don't know whether that's a uh, cause and effect but it does seem to go together. There was an interesting book written by Stefan Zweig on what happened in Germany when there was hyperinflation. And Zweig lived through that period, and he recalled in his uh, writings about it that the societies fell apart, that when, uh, first place, it was after the war, and in, in World War I, Germans largely lost faith in their governing authorities, and then along came hyperinflation, and they seemed to lose faith in everything. And uh, Zweig points out that people, families who had trusted the system, they trusted the system of capitalism, of German uh, order, uh, were wiped out. The bourgeois classes were wiped out during the German hyperinflation, and it it went right to the heart of the culture of the the country and destroyed it, apparently. And so that's when you started getting beer hall rally, uh, beer hall fights and things in Germany, which had been the most civilized country in the world became, in many ways, the least civilized. And Zweig uh, focuses on this event, this hyperinflation that destroyed people's faith in their own uh, society, in the money, in their savings, in their attitudes. There didn't seem to be any reason to continue uh, living a virtuous life when virtue clearly didn't pay off anymore. Yeah, It's extraordinary when you read any account of of that period, and in fact, inflations, hyperinflations, anywhere, how quickly the civilized become uncivilized. 
Yes, dangerously quickly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maggie Thatcher said the veneer of civilization is very thin. Well, absolutely. <laughs> now, um, in a, a couple of your articles, which I which I always enjoy reading, you've you've compared uh, American monetary policy to that of the, of the Zimbabwean central bank, um, and they have a highly inflationary monetary policy, but nevertheless. We have had a deflationary bust. Uh, do you think some kind of hyperinflation is inevitable uh, eventually? Or Well, I, I certainly thought that. I'm not sure I think it now. My, my views change with the facts. And, uh, and uh, what we're seeing is that, uh, well, we're, we're beginning to understand why it was that Japan could not inflate its economy that it turns out inflation is much more difficult than, than many people thought. In fact, more, more difficult than I thought. You know, you, it seems simple enough. You just print up a few extra bills, and the bills go into circulation, and they bid up the prices. But actually, that's not what happens. And in modern, large, sophisticated, developed countries like the United States of America, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to, create, a, in, to create inflation of any sort. And hyperinflation... As they say, as Milton Friedman used to say, that inflation is always a monetary phenomenon, but hyperinflation is not. <laughs> hyperinflation is a political phenomenon where people deliberately try to destroy a currency, and you do that very simply. You just add zeros. You know, it's very simple to create hyperinflation if you want to badly enough. The trouble is, in developed countries, it's very, very, extremely rare that a developed, mature, sensible country, and I put the U.S. in that category, <laughs> just, just uh, would resort to such a, such a, you know, it's like going nuclear in a war. You don't do that unless you have nothing left, uh, left at all. And so we've seen hyperinflation in civilized countries only once or twice, in the last hundred years. And we've seen, of course, in places like Argentina, where they operate on a different scale. <laughs> you know, they dance to a different rhythm down there. But in America, I just I mean, can't picture the, it. Well, the, the, the diff one of the great differences between Argentina and, and uh, America and Northern Europe is that, um, I mean, Argentina is largely made up of Southern Europeans who, if I am to generalize, and I don't mean this, I, I say this as someone who is part Italian himself, they have a lot less faith in their authorities than Northern Europeans do. And so they tend to act with a lot less, with a lot more self-interest than, say, Germanic people tend well, to. Well, that, that's an interesting, you know, they're not just Italian, they're Sicilian. Okay. And, uh, and uh, the further south you go in Europe, the more civilized people become. And they, you know, the Sicilians, the Italians, they've lived with many, many monetary regimes over many, many centuries, and they are much more hip to the ways in which these things work than Northern Europeans, and much more than Americans. Americans have the most simplistic and naive look, view of, um, you know, international monetary systems of anyone. They, they believe wholeheartedly, 100% in the value of the dollar, and in the, had sort of an unlimited faith and the ability of the authorities to manipulate the system. Well, the Italians, and the, certainly the Argentines, you know, they're wiser. <laughs> In a way, they're older and wiser. Absolutely. They've been around the block once or twice. 
And I was just, uh, well, I go to, I, I live in Argentina some of the time, and uh, when, you, when you buy an apartment in Argentina, you show up with cash. You know, they don't have credit, and, you, and they don't have a reliable uh, settling system. So you go to an apartment settle, settlement with a bushel basket of bills, and that's the way you settle up, because they, you know, they're they are civilized enough and sophisticated enough to realize that you can't trust the banks, you can't trust mortgage financing, and you can only trust things that you see and feel and cash in hand. To me, that's that's a mark of a civilized people. Absolutely, I have to say just a little comment on the Argentinians. They are the most beautiful people in the world, bar none. Do you? Oh, I agree completely. I mean, they're just absolutely <laughs> stunning. I've travelled a lot in South America, and every time you see a bunch of Argentinians, your kind of jaw drops. Yeah, very sophisticated people. Um, I suppose an, another thing, the people haven't allowed hyperinflation to happen. People have started saving rather than spending, and they've kind of... Uh, and paying down their debt. And they, that's, I suppose, one hyperinflation preventative. The other, of course, has been the debt markets and the bond markets. Yeah, well, I think that we're seeing deflation generally throughout the the world, and especially in America. In America, the uh, I think we're going to see a much deeper wave of deflation because America has this huge population of baby boomers, and I call this uh, this event that's happening the baby boomer depression, because the boomers uh, were bo- were born right after the war have grown up with this uh, credit cycle. You know, as they got older and older, the credit cycle got bigger and bigger. And by the time they were in their 50s and early 60s was when we had that final stage, which is the bubble phase of the credit cycle. Now, that cycle seems to have topped out, burst. The bubble has burst. And the boomers all of a sudden are in what is a very difficult situation because they have, for the last 10 years, the last 10 years in returns on U.S. stocks was the worst 10 years in history. And uh, the return was negative for the entire 10-year period. Uh, and the return on housing for the last 10 years, last five years or so, it was negative. And it's getting more negative because housing prices, despite recent signs that they might be stabilizing, housing prices are probably still going down. And they're probably still going to go down another 10 20%. So Americans who thought they were going to retire on credit cards, houses, and stocks are in big, big trouble and what we're seeing now, I think, is the beginning of a massive panic into savings. Uh, we have seen the rates went from zero to now a reported rate of 8% in a period of about 18 months. This is a phenomenal turnaround, and it can't be ignored. Now, what does that mean in terms of inflation? It means there's not going to be any inflation because they're not going to, you know, in order to get consumer price inflation, you have to have consumers buying things. When consumers don't buy things, the demand goes down and prices go down with it. It's also very bullish for the U.S. dollar, I would have thought. It is bullish for the U.S. dollar. That's another strange thing. The U.S. government is trying to destroy the dollar, but the U.S. population is busily stashing it away. So I think for the time being, the dollar is probably going to hold up pretty well, unless, of course, some event happens and the Chinese or Japanese or the foreigners begin to dump it. After the um, dot-com bust uh, we had in the stock market we basically had a v-shaped recovery there was a, a bear market that bottomed in in 2002 2003 and and to everyone's surprise the stock markets rallied until about 2007 do you think 
uh, as we're speaking now, stock markets look like they may be making a little turn. But do you think the U.S. authorities have done it again? Have they managed to engineer another V-shaped recovery? Or well, no. I think there's, uh, in my mind, no question but that they failed and that they can only fail. If you look at all those, uh, every post-war recession from 1945 all the way up to 2003 or so. Everyone was followed by looser monetary policies and by more uh, consumer credit and more consumer spending. This is the first one in that whole period that has not been followed by more consumer spending. And uh, that is something that is, it's, a, it's a first and it's probably going to be fatal to, this, to any hopes for a recovery. And besides, you have to think about what would a recovery mean? You, you would have to presume that things could become even crazier than they were in 2006 and 2007. I just can't imagine it. They were so crazy then. that I think we hit a peak in craziness in those years. Now, you have a, a nice, healthy American accent, and uh, you were born in America, but I understand now you, you divide your time between Paris and London. Did you let your American citizenship go and... Well, I had to, as a matter of fact, because in, uh, in, in France, where I am uh, a publisher, uh, you cannot be uh, a, cannot own certain publishing parts of the press in France without being a European citizen, and, uh, because the press is considered a special kind of industry. So uh, that was sort of one one uh, motivating force, but th- there are other you know, other things going on, which probably you know I don't want to get into too too much. But uh, there there are probably good reasons not to be an American. Uh, of course, you know I, I am make, an American. Let's face it, I'm. Do they make American. life difficult for you when you go back? No, no, they're very oh. very not. They don't have haven't yet. I touch wood. But, uh, you know, I have to say that there's a difference. I am an American, and I will always be an American, and there are many things about Americanism I, I, I treasure and value, but I am not a U.S. citizen, and that's a different thing. A citizenship is something one can choose. You can't choose what you are, but you can choose to be, and that's part of the basic human rights that have been established for a long time. You can choose to be a citizen in whatever country you want, theoretically, but it's not that easy. It's tough sometimes. But uh, that choice is made on the basis of a lot of practical considerations, and some of them have to do with just purely family matters that uh, governments have, you know, are not political or anything, just mm-hmm. purely family. So your children, have they kept their American citizenship? Or yes, they, they are. Oh, okay. I see. Well, um, and do you own property in the U.S.? Are you buying property in the U.S.? Or are you... I own property. I'm not buying anywhere now. Uh, I own property in several places, and the U.S. is one of them. And I think U.S. probably is a good market for buying in some places. And some of those areas are pretty bombed out, and uh, you can get one heck of a piece of property in Detroit right now. <laughs> <laughs> we did a show about that, actually. Yeah. Um, I have my For my two P's worth, I think if you're English and you're thinking of buying a property in the U.S., I am very bearish on the pound and you know we've had a nice rally in the pound and if you're English and you want that second home in southern Florida somewhere I think now's as good a time as any to buy it well it's a good time to shop I, I think you've got to be careful I think they'll be going down more and if, you, if you're going to go to Florida get you know get a bargain because there are lots of bargains oh, there yeah. but I think it's good I think everybody should diversify in fact uh, you know the Englishman should have some place in the, the US and the American should have a place in England but 
But I, sus- I, I suspect that'll make the regulator's life very yeah, difficult. Yeah, it makes the regulator's life, life difficult. But I suspect that the English-speaking world in general is in a multi-decade uh, decline. So for English speakers, maybe you want to diversify into Argentina or something. Well, it's a great country, and it's still cheap, and the people are beautiful, and the wine is nice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, Bill Bonner, it's been a real pleasure. Um, is there anything you'd like to promote? I mean, if somebody's like this interview and like listening to you, maybe they should sign up for the Daily Reckoning. Is that a good place well, to start? Well, it certainly could. Uh, I write every day. I uh, have been doing it for the last 10 years. And uh, by pure luck, I, don't, uh, I wouldn't go any further than to say it's pure luck, our trade of the decade, which we announced 10 years ago, which was to buy gold and sell stocks, that has turned out to be a very, very good trade. So I think I'm hoping to come up with another trade of the decade for the next decade. <laughs> Are you sticking with your gold for now? I'm sticking with gold. I think gold is probably going to decline because I think the market's going to go down. But I would bet I would stick with it because everything else looks so dangerous compared to gold that I'm sticking with gold. Yeah, I mean, I think gold will fall if the market's correct, but it won't fall by as much and it'll yes. rally out first. I'm, I'm putting a downward floor of about $800 on gold, and then an upward ceiling could go into the thousands eventually. Okay, I'm going to raise your downward floor to 860 <laughs> All right. Good stuff. Well, Bill Bonner, thank you very much. Thank you. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 